a survey in 2021 showed that the level of democracies actually receded back to the 1980s. We're going backwards. Yeah, we're going on backwards, that. actually. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Marcel Weider, a veteran of public affairs and politics based in Canada. Marcel is president of Aurora Strategy Group. Marcel is also in charge of communications for the International Association of Political Consultants. I got a chance to talk to him in his capacity for IAPC about the responsibility of political consultants in a time of serious challenges to democracy in the U.S. and abroad, as well as about the IAPC's upcoming yearly conference and the Democracy Medal they award. We also covered some of Marcel's career, which includes putting together the Working Families Organization in Canada. If you're interested in political consulting, Marcel is someone you should know. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Marcel Weider of the IAPC. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So, Marcel, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Marcel Weider. I'm the president and chief advocate for Aurora Strategy Group. I'm also the vice president of communications for the International Association of Political Consultants. I've been working in uh, politics and public affairs for over 30 years. Uh, Aurora Strategy has team members across Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Middle East. We focus on three different areas, government relations, public relations, and public affairs. Where did you grow up? So I'm one of those few people that are actually born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I've been a lifelong Blue Jays fan and a diehard Maple Leaf fan. And they haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1967, but uh, and hopefully they will next year. I've been there. I've been up the CN Tower. Very nice city. Very interesting city. Um, we, we, we love it. We, we consider it the center of the universe here. <laughs> What kind of family was it? Was it a political one? Not so much political, but I kept abreast of the daily news and what was happening. And so at the dinner table with my uh, parents and my sister, there would always be a discussion about what was in the news, how people reacted to, to politics. I became active in politics at a very early age. I was my junior high school school president. And then in high school, I was very active in university. I sat on the student council uh, for the University of Toronto and so being involved in that. And in 
liberal politics in Canada since I was 13 years old. In 1974 was my first campaign, and I've worked in campaigns uh, since then, uh, both as a volunteer and professionally. When you work in the U.S., what sort of work do you do here? Well, I haven't done too much work in the U.S. I was a member of the board of directors of the American Association of Political Consultants. As you know, the U.S. has certain laws that uh, prohibit the involvement of uh, foreign nationals in elections. And so I had to respect that. But uh, we were able to do some work in the U.S. that uh, met the criteria that allowed us to do that. For example? We did some direct mail campaigns for uh, candidates uh, in the U.S. Which party? Uh, oh, sorry. We worked with Democratic uh, consultants in the U.S. And the bulk of your work is Canadian? Or, I mean, you mentioned multiple parts of the Yes, the bulk of the, of the work, that, yeah, the, 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 part, the bulk of the work is uh, in Canada. However, now we're looking at expanding and we're growing. And so we have uh, U.S. team members in Washington, Florida, San Francisco, and in LA. So they're all Democratic-based consultants with a huge amount of experience uh, working on campaigns at the national, state, and local levels. Why have you decided to be active in the AAPC and the IAPC? What does that do for you, and why is that important part of what you do? Well, I think part of it is you have to give back to the organizations that represent your industry. And both the AAPC and IAPC help represent political consultants and represent people who are very concerned about democracy, who are concerned about how things are, are shaping up and you know potential limits on uh, democratic participation. Sometimes there's been uh, rules that have been proposed in Congress or in state levels that would uh, severely impact the ability of political consultants to help get their clients' message to voters. And so being involved in the organizations, both uh, in the U.S. and internationally, has allowed us to be able to educate legislators on the issues and help uh, promote the profession as a whole. Do you think the profession as a whole is a positive part of democracy or a negative part? Well, I like to say that, you know, in the case of the IAPC, the International Association of Political Consultants, we're the people who make democracy happen. And a political consultant, by the way, covers a broad range. It's not just the media consultant or the pollster, but it's anyone from the campaign manager, the direct mail person, television. It covers a whole range of people in in that description. And so, you know, without campaign managers, without field organizers, without uh, a lot of the, the people who help make democracy happen, it becomes more challenging. And so I think it's it's important that the profession is recognized for what it does. It's become a lot more professionalized over the last 50 years. Uh, there's more people who are participating in it. There's more companies that are supplying services to the industry. So it's really grown. 
In the U.S., uh, you know, they're talking about the midterm elections that campaigns will be spending in, in the billions of dollars. And it's not just the actual candidates who are running for office, but there's a whole plethora of groups, uh, third parties who want to participate in the democratic process to share their point of view, to get their message out to voters to consider before people cast their ballots. So it's it's really become a multi-billion dollar industry that continues to to provide voters with the information that they need so that they can make informed decisions. If you were kind of going to step up to a kind of broad level of abstraction, how would you compare the politics in Canada, the US, Europe, Middle East? Like what Obviously, they're very different political systems, different political cultures, different political parties, et cetera. But are there generalizations you can make about what's different from place to place around the world? Sure. In the U.S., the U.S. leads the world in, in terms of democracy and political activity and in terms of the professionalization of the industry. And so what you see in the U.S., is a lot of uh, professional elements that are then carried over into Europe, Canada, Middle East, elsewhere. For example, you know the use of technology. A lot of uh, the technology that is pioneered in the U.S. has been used in other countries. For example, the van system that's used by Democratic candidates in the Democratic Party is used in Canada is being used in the UK and Europe and elsewhere. Similar types of software on the Republican side have been being used in Israel and in Europe and in other countries. So you see uh, people coming to the US, campaigns and elections runs a, a conference, or actually they run several conferences. Uh, the AAPC and the IAPC also have annual conferences and people from around the world come to learn about new techniques to reach voters, new uh, systems that are out there that may be available uh, to campaigns to be able to uh, get their message across, the use of the internet, the use of podcasts like the one we're on to, to get people uh, information, TikTok, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all the various social media platforms have been utilized in political campaigns. And so a campaign that takes place in the U.S. could you know, see elements of that in Brazil or in Mexico or in India. So there's a lot of sharing of ideas. A lot of it does originate, however, in the U.S. What do you think is the responsibility right now for a political consultant in a country that face like an illiberal authoritarian or wannabe authoritarian figure running in the democratic process. Is there any responsibility to not consult to people like that who might be dangerous to the system? What are your thoughts about that in the Hungaries or the Turkeys or maybe some people consider Trump in the U.S. such a figure? I know I attended the European Association of Political Consultants conference recently in Vienna, and, and I'm a member of the EAPC. And there was actually a debate as to whether 
political consultants should be held accountable for the actions of their clients. It was a very vigorous debate in that respect. There was arguments made on both sides of the aisle in that respect. And at the end, it was referred for further study. Some may say that's a bit of a cop-out, but I think that uh, it does require further study. It's, it's very difficult if, if you're a political consultant and you're working in a democratic process and a client comes up to you and, and says, you know, I want to be a, a candidate for this particular office. And then, you know, you agree to it and then you learn that some of their platform may be anti-democratic or maybe, you know, too far out for, for your comfort. And then the question is whether you have a moral obligation to work with that client once you take them on. Every political consultant has to make that decision for themselves. I've been approached by candidates who I personally didn't agree with their particular stance, whether it was on, you know, reproductive rights or on guns or things like that. And so I chose not to accept them as a, as a client. I have the luxury of doing that because it's my company. Others don't necessarily have that privilege. One thing is an issue like reproductive rights, which is important as it is and firm as I am in where I stand on it, is something where there can be honest disagreement. But there's something different about someone who is really anti-system itself, where you want to kind of bring an end to debates and the political process more generally and hold on to power in a extra legal way, ultimately. So I'm really referring to that dilemma. What do you make of the kind of the Manaforts and people like that who have had no trouble, you know, U.S. consultants have had no trouble serving Russian-sponsored politicians in Ukraine or working for Trump as his campaign manager or things like that. I mean, do you think that there ought to be action through the IAPC or the AAPC regarding consultants who are willing to do that? Well, again, this is an excellent point that you raise and uh, one that I think more and more discussion is going to be taking place over the next little while. Certainly in the case of Trump, I think there's probably a general consensus that Trump being a recognized candidate for president through the political process of the primaries, etc., um, I don't think political consultants wouldn't have a problem working for him. I don't think that's a particular good example. But I think in other cases that you raise, you know, where it's involving anti-democratic candidates that want to dismantle the system, I think that raises a lot of questions. And it's not just a phenomenon in the U.S., but we're, as you point out, in Hungary. We're even seeing it here in Canada. We've seen it in South America, where these populist leaders are getting elected and then trying to change the election laws, trying to extend their terms in office and the like. And you know, it's it's a sad commentary that a survey in 2021 showed that the level of democracies actually receded back to the 1980s. 
we're going backwards. Yeah, we're going on backwards, that. actually. And we're also going backwards in public opinion about whether it's a good system. Exactly. And I think I saw one survey that said that about 40% of Americans question the system as to whether it reflects their reality. It's uh, very troubling that what you're seeing, especially since the 2020 election, where people openly challenged the fact that this was not a legitimate election, in their opinion, even though every state certified the ballot, the state election board certified the elections, we're seeing questions on about how elections are conducted. Certainly, this is a, a very recent phenomenon. It's something that hasn't taken place, as far as I can recall, you know, in all the 40 plus years that I've been involved in campaigns, nobody has ever actually challenged the final outcome. And you, you look at, for example, what happened with Gore versus Bush. They went to court, you know, the hanging chads, the challenges uh, back and forth uh, was ultimately dis- decided by the Supreme Court. But at the end of the day, everyone accepted the results. Nobody on the Democratic side said that it was not a legitimate election. And so, you know, this recent phenomena, especially from populist candidates of challenging the integrity of an election, is a very dangerous thing for democracy. It it really calls into question because if, if people can't trust the democratic process of how we elect our leaders, then people won't vote and won't participate. So that's why I was kind of shocked by your answer earlier about feeling that political consultants would find it legitimate to work for Trump still. He organized a mob to attack the Capitol to to stop the, the counting of votes. So what self-respecting agent of democracy, as you've characterized political consultants, would then work for a man like that? Well, as, as I pointed out, in the U.S., there is the primary system that allows candidates to be chosen by their party members. And the once the candidate who is chosen at convention is certified, the FEC and everyone recognizes that they are the standard bearer for that party. Who is a political consultant to say, we can't work for that candidate? I think it would be very difficult. Well, it would just be a question of having your own moral center or not. Okay. And that's what I said earlier is, you know, in, in my case, and, and, and there's a number of uh, political consultants on both sides of the aisle that have refused to work with candidates because they don't match up to what they believe is, is appropriate. And so you may have a political consultant, either a Republican or a Democrat, who, you know, doesn't feel that, that the candidate is, uh, is, is, uh, but this, this is another order of magnitude. This is someone who is not willing to accept the system that you work in. But they're a candidate within that system still, the, even the, if they right, reject. That's, that's exactly the problem. Hitler came into power in a democratic country. Mussolini came into power in a democratic country. They played outside the rules at certain points, but they, you know, they held an office that that was conferred upon them in different ways through either appointment by democratic elected leaders or by winning elections. 
don't we want to have our political consultants who have a profession that's dependent on the functioning of democracy? Don't we want them to, as a community, take a stand against this kind of behavior that's happening, not just in the United States, but, you know, in countries around the world? Wouldn't you want that to be part of what the definition of someone operating in good faith in that kind of job would would have? Again, uh, I'll refer back to my colleagues in the European Association of Political Consultants. They brought this issue up at the conference, and there was a, a, a tremendous amount of discussion about that. And they're going to look at seeing whether they can write that into uh, their constitution. And, and if you're a member of the EAPC, you would have to abide by by that. But here's the thing: with the U.S., there's an, a number of checks and balances within the system that hopefully will prevent a takeover or a change where a president would dissolve Congress or impose uh, new types of uh, legislation. Now, that's that's one of the wonderful things about the framers of the U.S. Constitution, built in all these checks and balances to ensure that something like that doesn't happen. They were very concerned about creating a system where a king would return and rule over the people. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not worried that the U.S. would fall into that type of system where what happened in Italy or Germany or in some other countries took place. I am more worried than you are, hence my questions, but I will let us get off the hook of that. I have the comfort of sitting here in Toronto and and, and watching what's happening. Wait till you have an aggressive power here deciding to annex part of Canada the way the Russians want to take Ukraine or the Chinese want to take Taiwan. It's not out of the realm of possibility with a sequence of the wrong kind of leaders. So, you know, I think the time to stop that kind of, you know, admittedly sounds outlandish right now. It's not impossible. In world history, we see systems break down and change dramatically over and over. And I think we need to be vigilant about protecting the ones that are here. Absolutely. You're 100% right in that respect. And that's why we need to ensure and strengthen democracy and ensure that there's a free press that's active and you know, engage and be able to share that information with the electorate, with voters. And so political consultants have a role to play in helping to ensure that voters are educated on the issues and have the materials so that they can make a proper decision when they go into that voting booth and cast their lever or press that button or send in by mail their ballot. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not just the potential presidents or prime ministers or whatever. It's also when you have absolutely outlandish people running for lower office that really, I don't think upstanding political consultants, I don't think should be helping them win. You know, even if they're the same party, if they are constantly lying, if they are saying outrageous things just to get attention, I, I think that we ought to steer clear of them. So then the question then becomes, who is the arbiter of deciding that? 
that and that was one of the challenges that the EAPC had. You know, who decides whether a claim that they're making is so outlandish that it's not available or it's, it's it, it can't be verified. That's one of the things about freedom of the press and freedom of speech is that you can put your point of view across. Professional associations in every field have set boundaries on you know on what is right and what is wrong. I think that a association of political consultants have good leadership and kick people out of of the benefits of that and blacklist people that are you know that are supporting candidates that are anti-democratic around the world. Someone's going to have to make that call or you're not doing your job. So here here's the challenge that we face as political consultants. We're not a professional regulatory body like the American Psychiatric Association. We can't take away a license. Anyone today can put up a shingle and call themselves a political consultant. They don't have to belong to the AAPC, IAPC, EAPC. They don't have to. We're a voluntary body. And so there are hundreds of political consultants. We'd love to have them all become members of our organization so that we could help, you know, educate and regulate some of them. But the reality is, is there's no obligation. We're not granted a special license by the government to hand out a license like the, like a doctor. But does the IAPC have consultants that work for Bolsonaro in Brazil? I'm not sure of the specifics of I our bet membership. They do. We have a broad broad range yeah. of uh, members. Uh, but I, I do know that uh, there are political consultants that work on you know both sides of the aisle, both in the U.S. and internationally. So it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if somebody may have acted as a consultant. But I, as far as within the IAPC... From the membership that I'm aware of, nobody's uh, worked for Bolsonaro or, for that matter, any other anti-democratic leader. The United Nations has declared September 15th as the International Day for Democracy. It recognizes that democracy is an important and fundamental aspect and so to be celebrated. A study shows that, you know, something like only 17% of the world's population live in democracies and and the rest live in various forms of totalitarian, authoritarian regimes. So democracy is very fragile. We have to protect it and nurture it and ensure its survival. Why do you think things are moving in that direction? Well, some of that, I think, has to do with the economic situation that people find themselves in. The populist movement has a very easy material to pick from. They find somebody to blame, usually the government, you know, the high cost of living, things aren't going well, the inflation rate. And so, you know, it's time for a change. Let's get rid of them. Let's get somebody else in. And, and that somebody else says, hey, I've got the solutions. I will take care of all your worries, not to uh, be bothered with it. Trust me, I'm your person. 
And for some people, that's very attractive. They don't have to think about these issues. And they're persuaded by these charismatic individuals who spin a good tale and then deliver something completely different. When these charismatic individuals are spinning a good tale, who's helping them spin that tale? Well, they could be PR people, not necessarily political consultants. There are other people who work in space, so they could be former journalists, they could be television reporters, they could be any number of uh, different people. We as political consultants focus on the democratic process of delivering a message to an audience and then motivating those people to an action which usually encompasses voting, either for or against a particular ballot issue or candidate. And so the IAPC a few years ago awarded the Democracy Medal to the women of Belarus who uh, were promoting democracy. And we also gave the medal to the Hong Kong Umbrella Movement And those were two grassroots organizations that promoted uh, democracy in their respective countries. Are you going to be awarding that medal again this year? Yes. And this year's recipient is Vladimir Zelensky and the people of the Ukraine. The medal will be awarded this November in London, England at the annual general meeting of the International Association of Political Consultants. If anyone is interested in coming to London to be part of that convention, that conference, you can go to IAPC.org and uh, you can join and sign up for that. We've extended an invitation to the president, but as you probably are aware, he is not leaving the country at present. Hopefully by November, with good luck, he might be able to because the uh, illegal Russian Invasion will be turned back and democracy and the rule of law in Ukraine will be respected by Russia. And hopefully we can get him to uh, be in person. Boy, that seems unfortunately a little unlikely, but it would be wonderful if it turned out that way. Well, I, I try to be a bit of an optimist where I can. What else would you like people to know about the IAPC or other things that you guys do in support of democracy? So as I mentioned earlier, the IAPC has its annual conference in London this year. Next year we'll be in Tel Aviv and the following year we'll be in Toronto. So we've got our schedule of conferences lined up for the next three years. We have an amazing number of uh, speakers that attend. And so it's a real opportunity if you're interested in democracy and in terms of campaigns and how they're run and seeing the comparison of campaigns from one country to the other. It's an excellent opportunity to be a part of that conference. We plan on having uh, regional conferences. We work with our sister organizations, the AAPC in the United States, the EAPC in Europe, ALICOP in Latin America the African Association of Political Consultants. And so there's a regional uh, political consultant conferences that IAPC participates in. And so if, if you can't come to London, then maybe you might be able to find a conference closer to home. So you've made yourself a, you know, a multi-decade career 
at this intersection of politics and policy and communications. You happy about it? Has it been a good road? Is it something you want to continue the rest of the way? Absolutely. I I love what I do. No two days are the same. You don't know what type of uh, situation, whether it's a crisis that forms or you're working to help get a candidate elected or a party elected to power and ensuring that those policies are implemented. Politics is, is really about people. And I've had the good fortune of meeting a lot of very interesting people over my career and having been able to sit at the table at some important junctures and help contribute to the discussion and to helping ensure that those points of view are are heard, whether in Canada or internationally. So I'm I'm very proud of it. I'm I'm happy to uh, belong uh, to to the various organizations and uh, being able to earn a, a living doing this. If there was one campaign or I don't know other advocacy that you've done that you're most proud of, what would that be? No, it's hard to choose, but. I had the privilege of creating an organization called Working Families, not the same as the U.S. Working Families. We actually preceded them. And it was an organization of various labor groups, nurses, teachers, construction workers, a lot of different organizations that came together under one roof that was able to articulate a message that in our state or our province of Ontario, it was necessary for a change. And as a result of the work that we did, we brought about that change. And it was the first independent third-party campaign in Canada. It then continued on for three more elections very successfully. And I'm very proud to have been the lead consultant for for working families. And as a result of that, I've done some work with other labor groups uh, across Canada and hoping to be able to do more work internationally. That does sound like quite an accomplishment. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? I think one of the things that, that I want to, to get across is that Right now, people have a somewhat negative view of politics. And I can understand that. You know, social media has become an uh, amplifier of divergent viewpoints, and it could get very nasty in, in politics. And I can tell you that in my earlier career, I would go out for beers with my conservative opponents. And there was a level of civility. And in, in fact, I have to say that you know, I did a podcast where I had a conservative member of parliament on, and I happen to be a liberal. I'm concerned that that civility is somewhat lost. I see it in, in the U.S. House. I see it in state legislatures and the provincial legislatures. And really, that troubles me. And I think that has helped erode confidence in 
democracy. And we need to get that back. At the end of the day, we're all trying to make where we live a better place. I have my opinions how we can do that. You have your opinions to do that. We should respect those opinions. And at the end of the day, one of us may be successful, the other may be, but we should be able to hang up our partisanship and be able to go out and have a beer together. And I don't see that today. I know young staffers working in the House in Ottawa or in Queens Park or in Washington or whatever state they're in, basically only socialize with their own. And they've weaponized the system that you can't have friends across the aisle. There's very few examples of, you know, where Democrats and Republicans join forces and, you know, become social. I think one of the best examples, actually, and and it should be a model, is the way President Clinton and Presidents Bush, both George W.H. and George W. Bush, had a relationship and they actually toured together for, for a while in Common Cause. You don't see that today. And, and it's very troublesome. And I think we need to, to recognize and to be able to deal with that. And if anything, I, I would encourage my friends on, on both sides of the aisle to recognize that the other person there is, is not a bad person, is, is not out to destroy you or the values that you hold important, but is just trying to improve our lot in life and improve where we stand. And if if you start to recognize that, I think we can make progress on some of the bigger issues. It's something that, that troubles me and does cause the occasional sleepless night when I see the sniping that goes on on social media between uh, partisans. You know, we got to put an end to that. And hopefully our elected officials who bear a great deal of responsibility in this respect, understand that and start playing the important role that they should be playing. And that is to unite, not divide us. Well, some do, and some really don't. Do you have any prescription for getting back to that kind of civility? And do you think that your organization can play a role? In fact, that's one of the wonderful things about the AAPC, IEPC, and EPC is, is that we do bring all the different political people together. So at an American Association of Political Consultants, I've gone out for dinners with Republicans and Democrats, and it's wonderful. Our president, Matt Klink, happens to be a Republican, and he's become a very close personal friend of mine. We share different viewpoints on some of the issues, but we talk to each other on a regular basis. And I can tell you, Whit Ayers is another Republican, and I can go down the list of other Republicans that I've had the pleasure of uh, meeting and, and getting to know better. And so I, I think if I, if I was working in Congress or working in Ottawa, I would have a mandatory get-together of staffers. Bring them all together. It could be by state caucus or, you know, by whatever other means, 
bring them together and let them meet each other and find out that they're not as terrible as you think that they are. It's amazing when you break bread together in, in a common situation, your views start to, to change about your opponent and you, re, you recognize their humanity and, and their point of view and you're able to respond to that. So I, if, if I have a prescription, I would make it mandatory for every incoming staffer to sit down with their opposite across the aisle. Doesn't sound like a bad idea. It's been an honor to have you on. I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I, I, I'm the one who should say that I was honored to, to be on your podcast. So I really appreciate the opportunity, the questions and the discussion. I, I, I hope it, the audience finds it of interest. And if you'll have me, I'd love to come back at a future date. Marcel, appreciate having you on. That was Marcel Weeder. Marcel is at IAPC.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.